If you would, turn in the Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Back to Revelation. We today look at the third church out of the seven that is spoken to. The church at Pergamum. Again, this is the third one in chapter 2. There's seven over chapters 2 and 3. want to encourage you all as church people and as followers of Christ to be ready to take in all that this month, this next month has to offer. March Madness is about to begin. Today is Selection Sunday. We will have brackets tonight. But that's not what I'm referring to. Easter Sunday is five weeks from today. Easter Sunday. Our church does a lot with that. We do a sunrise service at 7 a.m. outside on the front yard, on the front front steps of the porch of the church. We'd love for you all to be here. Uh, We do a Good Friday service. The weekend before Easter, we do an egg hunt, which is going to be massive up at the high school. We'd love for literally everybody to come and volunteer and be a part of that. Uh, There's a lot of building up toward Easter Sunday. The next month can be awesome for your faith, for your commitment to Christ and his church, being a a witness in the world. Undoubtedly, if you were to invite somebody to join you for church at an Easter service, they would come with you because Easter is a special time. We want to make sure that we're ready for that. And today is... Uh, The day that we turn the clocks, I know we're all a little sleepy today because we had one less hour of sleep, but the next month has a lot of potential for us to live outwardly for God. I want to encourage you all with that. Today, we're back at Revelation chapter 2, the third one to the church in Pergamum. The first one was Ephesus, and I want us to remember what each of these churches are known for, right? Ephesus was known for not loving, not loving. Jesus said he had that against them. Last week, we looked at Smyrna, the church in Smyrna, and he didn't say anything against them. That's one of the few that he doesn't. To the church in Smyrna, he told them, be faithful unto death. And I appreciated that that prayer from Pastor Matt McBroom just then, that God would stop the persecution, but even if he doesn't stop, that they would be faithful to the end. That wasn't just a prayer. That was a prayer of somebody that listened to last week's sermon. That's a prayer of somebody that knows what Revelation 2 says. That's a prayer of what Jesus tells his church. If it comes to that, be faithful unto death. That's what we remember about Smyrna. And today it is Pergamum. The problem with Pergamum is that because of some teaching they began to follow, their teaching, they were becoming worldly. They were still a church. They were still there. They suffered through the persecution. But because of the teaching they began to follow, they were becoming worldly. Church, we need to be reminded here today that the Bible teaches us what our posture should be in a world that does not believe God. We are to be in the world, but clearly not of the world. 
We are built different, as the young people like to say. We are made of something different. We have hearts that are focused on God. We follow truth, truth that has been delivered clearly through the word of God. We hate sin. We are not above sin. We are not better than anybody in the world. We can identify with the Apostle Paul when he says, I am the chief of sinners. We should be the first to repent and model humility that we do not have it all figured out. We are a broken and needy people that need a Savior, but we know that Savior. And the Bible teaches us how to navigate this in lots of ways. In Romans chapter 16, verse 19, it says... Be innocent to that which is evil and be about that which is good. That's an idea of where our heart should be. In James chapter 1, he tells us to not be hearers only of the word, but doers of the word. We hear to apply, we read to understand, we listen to have the word of God get inside of us and do something to us to produce in us faithfulness. A little bit later in James chapter one, after he says, don't be a hearer only, but be a doer of the word, we get that great passage when he says, true and undefiled religion before the Father is this, that we take care of widows and orphans. But after that, in the same verse, he says, and to keep yourself unstained from the world. We are people who are to live for God in the world, but not of the world. This idea is the problem with our church today, Pergamum. The Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12 through verse 17, the letter from John from Jesus to John, written down, and to the church at Pergamum. Read with me, beginning in verse 12 of Revelation 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That's Jesus' word to the church in Pergamum. I mentioned before that there is no longer an an, an Ephesus. And last week we talked about Smyrna, 
Pergamum is a city that has a lot of history. It's still there today. It is modern-day Bergama of Turkey. The place is still there. Pergamum during this time was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. Asia Minor. It had been that for a long time, over 250 years. And it was very much so an ungodly place. Very little reverence for the true God. But it was also very much so a very religious place. Pergamum was known as the religious center of the world for pagan cults. There were all sorts of statues and idols there. It was the first city in all of Asia to build a temple for worship of Caesar. There was also a throne altar there built for Zeus. And there are many, 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 many false gods that they worshipped here in Pergamum. But that's not the biggest reputation of Pergamum. Pergamum was known as being a very intellectual place. Pergamum had a massive, enormous library that everybody knew about. Over 200,000 volumes in their library. They liked to study. They liked to be learned in that city. They thought because of their education that they could figure out religion in their own ways. They felt good or self-righteous in their intellect or their study. If Ephesus was a big thriving city like we would think of New York City, Pergamum would be more like Washington, D.C. Or to make it a little closer to home, Ephesus would be more like a Louisville and a Lexington, and Pergamum would be more like a Frankfurt, the capital of our state. Authority there, decision makers there, government there, the educated and sophisticated there in Pergamum. This is the city where this church is at. Christians that live in those places. And the honest thing that we know here today from reading this passage is that it was difficult to be a Christian in that area. And we must admit that there are different places today where it is more challenging to be a Christian in certain settings. And we're going to talk about this today. Sometimes that's just a neighborhood. Man, it's hard to be a Christian in that neighborhood. Sometimes that is a a household. And we can relate to people who say, man, it's hard being a Christian in my house. There's a lot of mocking of the faith. I'm the only one that tries to go to church, right? Sometimes it's hard to be a Christian at that school or at that office or in that workplace. Well, sometimes it's hard to be a Christian in a country or a state or a city. And that's the idea that comes out as we study Pergamum. Commentator Wilcock writes, speaking about this, that the Roman imperial power had its seat in the government there. There also was built the earliest temple for the state-sponsored worship of the emperor in Pergamum. Whether or not this is what what Christ meant by the throne of Satan, because we just read that, It emphasizes the kind of difficulties that Pergamene Christians had to face. For them, Satan is not merely, as at Smyrna, a slanderer working through a group of ill-disposed Jews. Remember we read that last week? The Jews there sounded like Satan because they talked bad about the Christians. That was last week. It says in, in Pergamum, it's not that way. 
For them, Satan's not merely that. Here in Pergamum, Satan appears as the ruler of this world. To take a phrase from John's gospel, and what John's first letter would call the world is in fact the great enemy of the church at Pergamum. It wasn't just some opposition in this city. It was like the whole city was against the believers. He goes on and he says, it includes the power of other institutions besides the machinery of the state, the enormous Pergamene library, the famous healing ministry of the priests of Ascopius, and crowning the city's Acropolis, the Greco-Asiatic altar of Zeus as the Savior. All this paraphernalia of an alternative society catering to our minds, our body, and our spirit is added to the overt demands of the Roman state. In Pergamum, it was the ruling governing authorities that influenced what they believed instead of God and his truth being the influence of what we are to believe. Commentator Wilcock writes, pay attention here, in the same way we will find later in Revelation the beast from the earth joined by the beast from the sea to offer men a viable life structure outside the kingdom of God. But that story must wait its turn. Anticipating John's further revelations is a fruitful way of misunderstanding them. And I've tried to hint at that week after week. Let's take Revelation one step at a time. This morning, it is the letter and warning to the church at Pergamum. Verse 12 begins the way all of them begin, with a reference back to Jesus and how he's shown himself in chapter 1. Here at verse 12, if you'll look there, it says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. You see that, right? This is not something new to us. Jesus describes himself this way. If you'll look back at chapter 1, verse 16, this is the vision that John sees of Jesus. In verse 16, he says, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The word of God is often identified as a sharp two-edged sword that's able to work and cut and get into us and convict us and change us. This is what the word does. And so when we see Jesus in his glory, this sharp sword that describes the word is coming out of mouth where words come. It's a wild picture, we know, a sword coming out of a mouth. But if you know what the sword represents, you know who Jesus is, we understand that. This is the power and authority of the word of God. It's mentioned multiple times. If you'll turn with me quickly to chapter 19, I want you to see this. Turn in your Bible, Revelation, stay in the same book to chapter 19. Now, this is the end of the Bible, and this is the end of the world, and this is the return of Jesus, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And notice verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is a strong passage. That's an overwhelming passage. That's a passage that kind of sticks with you and gets at you. It is Christ in his glory returning to save that which is his, returning to make final with everybody that has opposed him. But what we see there in all of the uh, description, the majestic description of Christ, is that sword coming out of his mouth. That sword represents the authority. It represents the truth. It represents the supremacy of God. The word of God is that which God will instruct and rule and enlighten and judge with. The word of God that comes out of the mouth of God is something that those who believe cling to and look to and follow and believe. And so at Revelation chapter 2, back to our passage today, we see this being the emphasis to the church at Pergamum. Now, earlier in our service, we read from Hebrews chapter 4. And Hebrews chapter 4 also mentions that the word of God is a two-edged sword. But it says also that it is powerful and living, that the word is alive. And when it gets inside of you, it goes to work and cuts you up. And it says it, it cuts you deep into bone and marrow and joint, and it goes to work on changing us from the inside out. The Word of God, used by the Spirit of God, truly does that. That's why we're here this morning, that we would hear a sermon true to the truth, and God would use it to build our faith. So the Jesus tells the angel to tell this to the church, and it comes from Christ, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Well, two points this morning, like we've been doing each week. The first thing is what Jesus knows about them. Number one, Jesus says, I know you hold fast my name. Look at verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus tells his church in Pergamum, I know this, you guys keep holding on. You're holding tight. You're holding fast. You're not letting go to my name, and this is a good thing. This is a really good thing. In Pergamum, where it is really hard to be a Christian, they're maintaining being Christians. They're keeping their faith, even though everybody around them disagrees. Even though they're mocked, even though they're persecuted, even though there are people that totally disagree with them, they keep holding on. 
It is a characteristic of Christians that we are to persevere until the end. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And if it comes to the point where the world has totally disagreed with us and gone against us, we must not let go of Christ and our hope. And this is what Jesus knows about them. They hold fast to his name. But why this is such a nice thing to recognize is because of how bad it is. And we see this in verse 13 by there being two mentions of Satan in the one verse. Look at verse 13. He says, where they dwell is where Satan's throne is. Imagine that. Imagine if Louisville was known as the throne of Satan. Imagine if Fairdale was known as Satan's throne place. This is Jesus saying that's what Pergamum's like. Satan had such a stronghold on that city. There was so much cult religion there. There was so much false worship, idol worship, idolatry. There was so much religion there and people who are self-righteous and think that they're good, but not based off God or his salvation through mercy and grace and forgiveness through Jesus, that it was like Satan's throne. At the beginning of verse 13, he says where Satan's throne is. At the end of verse 13, he says where Satan dwells. There, in that place, they were holding fast to his name. Think about that. Are those our church bells going off? Is it already noon? Oh, time change. Okay. I was seriously thinking that I had already hit noon. <laughs> oh, man. Woo. Okay. Sorry about that. So what is good about the church at Pergamum, which Christ knows and identifies to, is that even there, a place recognized as being very satanic, if you will, Jesus uses the word twice, they're still holding fast his name. And he recognized that about them. And then he gives one specific example of just how bad it is. And he tells us about this guy, Antipas, which in the whole New Testament, this is the only place that he's mentioned. It's hard to figure out who this guy was. There's not, there's not much more about him. Nowhere else in the Bible is there, and really throughout church history, there's no mention. Many people say we could probably assume that he was their leader, like I told you last week that the well-known pastor of Smyrna, Polycarp, there's lots of story about him in church history. He was burnt at the stake. He was the first martyr after the apostles. Well, here, Antipas is known as the first martyr in Asia Minor. Maybe he was their pastor. But look what it says. Even in the days of Antipas, and he calls him my faithful witness. A martyr is a witness, a faithful witness. A martyr is somebody that's willing to die for what they believe. It's somebody that dies for what they believe. In that way, Jesus was a martyr. He died for the cause of God. In that way, Stephen, in the early chapters of Acts, chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, Stephen was a martyr in the early church, believing, believing in Christ even as he was stoned 
to death. And here, Antipas, who we don't know much about, was killed. It says, was killed among you, was killed in Pergamum. He was a faithful witness. And Jesus says here that it was in that setting you did not deny my faith. Does everybody see that in verse 13? Verse 13 tends to be a long verse, and there's a lot there. But that's the thing. They kept believing even as Antipas was killed. They kept believing even as a leader among them was killed. They didn't let that cause them to say, I'm done with this. They didn't let that cause them to throw in the towel or give up or lose their faith or turn their backs on God or truth or salvation or Christ. They kept believing there. They held on to his name. They did not deny my faith. That sounds good, doesn't it? In this life, we will face trials and tribulations. And we are not to let them get us. They are not to distract us or change us. As we just sang, Jesus is to be the foundation of our lives. And while all the structure may get knocked down, may the foundation remain. May the anchor hold, we just sang that too, that Christ is the anchor of our lives. May we say, life has sent me for a whirlwind, but God has not moved, God has not changed, and my faith will remain in him. Jesus recognizes this, which is a huge compliment to the church in Pergamum. They hold fast to Jesus. They hold fast to the faith, like Antipas, the faithful witness, even amidst, even in the midst of where Satan dwells. Now, we need to admit that none of us really are living in a setting like this. There are some places in the world now, and I appreciated uh, Matt's prayer for the persecuted church. There are places in the world right now where it is illegal to be a Christian. You'll be killed immediately for identifying with Christ. You have to run, you have to hide, you have to be sneaky and all of that. There is so much opposition, and we know that we don't live in that. Praise God for the land of the free and the home of the brave, and that we have the freedom to be open about Christ. We are thankful for that. But we can also recognize that there are places in our lives where it is harder to be Christian. We have people around us that totally think that we're a joke. We have people around us that think we're ridiculous in what we believe. We have people around us that do not believe this Bible. There are jobs that will not hire you if you believe this Bible. And there are people that will not like you if you believe this Bible. And in that way, it is hard or difficult to be a Christian. May we, like the church of Pergamum, hold fast to the name of Jesus. May we know that even as we hold on to him, he holds on to us. May we know that we are in his grip, that he will not let us go. May we be like the church at Pergamum and be faithful, a faithful witness. And may we be like the church of Pergamum and not deny his faith. One commentator writes, In brief, Satan is working here through the pressures of non-Christian society. We can feel that, can't we? Satan is working here through the pressures of non-Christian society. He goes on. He persecutes 
The suffering which will come to Smyrna has already come to Pergamum, and one at least has died a martyr's death already, Antipas. Satan seduces the Nicolaitans, which we'll talk about in a little bit. We met at Ephesus, are also here in Pergamum. And though we know practically nothing about them, their teaching is apparently of the same kind as that of Balaam, which we get from the Old Testament, who had led God's people into sin long before. Christian teachers, supposedly Christian teachers, that teach in such a way that they allow sin. Both the sins mentioned in verse 14 may be taken literally. Both of them appeared in Balaam's time, which is in the book of Numbers, but they also reappeared in this New Testament church as well as in the Corinthian New Testament church. And the pathway to them is the kind of temptation which is typical of worldliness in any age. It sounds like this. Where's the harm in it? Everyone else does it. Why shouldn't we do it? When Christian people and church people Learn to justify bad things because it's not that damaging. They are giving way to going against God. God has given us his word to lead us toward him, to be like him, to identify with him. Don't we remember the most foundational passage of Genesis chapter 3? when really all they did was eat some fruit from the tree. I've already had some fruit this morning. I had a banana this morning like I do most days. And eating fruit in and of itself is not a bad thing, is it? If you want to explain Genesis 3 by saying, hey, all they did was eat some fruit, you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. You're finding a way to explain what's wrong in a way that sounds like it's not wrong. They were just eating fruit, fruit that God said, don't eat. Is it wrong to eat fruit? No. Is it wrong to eat fruit that God says don't eat? Absolutely. You know, when we're trying to teach kids, it may be something as simple as, I want you to sit right there. I've got to do something over here. Don't get up. If you get up, you're going to be punished. And they get up. And it may be simple as, hey, they just stood up, right? But real parents know they disobeyed what their parent told them to do. The issue is not, is it good or bad to get up? The issue is, do they mind or do they not? Well, you figure it out in your household on how you're going to handle that. But with God, everything, I know that we could sit here and go, well, the parent maybe shouldn't have told them that. I mean, they only have such capacity at that age to be able, I mean, I know how you parents talk. But with God, he does not give us any rules that are bad for us. Zero. God's ways are good. And if we struggle to see that, there's a flaw on our side. God's ways are good for us. 
He's good and true and right and just and holy. And whatever he tells us to do is good for us. We must embrace that and believe that. When he tells them to not eat the fruit, they would do well to say, God said so, and I'm not going to eat the fruit. But they didn't. They sinned, and therefore, all humanity died spiritually. Here, we have Pergamum holding fast, not denying the faith, but beginning to embrace worldliness because their teachers have found a way to justify some sins. It's okay, it's not that bad, it's not really messing up anything. And that's a problem. Point number one here today is Jesus saying, I know you hold fast my name. And that's all in verse 13. But our second and final point is Jesus saying, but I have a few things against you. But I have a few things against you. Obviously, it's not good if Jesus has something against you. It's a bad thing. And here, as we'll see starting in verse 14, look at verse 14 with me. That's where he says, but I have a few things against you. And really, it's just two things, okay? It's just two things. The first is that they hold to the teaching of Balaam, And the second is that they hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's it. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Look at verse 15. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's it. That's the few things that they have. It's just that. And in verse 15, it doesn't even tell us what the result is of that Nicolaitan teaching. In verse 14, it does tell us the result of the Balaam teaching. Look back at verse 14. Some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Balaam was a prophet of God. You can go back to the book of Numbers and read it. Some of y'all that have read the Old Testament before in the book of Numbers, you might remember Balaam's donkey. That's the, that's the best thing about uh, the story of Balaam. Balaam's riding on a donkey, and his donkey doesn't do what he wants him to do. So God causes the donkey to finally speak to Balaam in a miracle because Balaam is so distracted and not listening. It's an awesome story. There's an angel there ready to kill Balaam because Balaam is disobeying God and the donkey saves his life. And he starts beating his donkey because he won't do what he tells him to do. That's the story of Balaam. It's Numbers 22 through 25. But what happened there? This Balak that's named here asks Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And Balaam says, I'm not gonna do it. He does say, let me go ask God what he wants me to do. And God says, no, you're not going to curse them. I want you to bless them. And so Balaam comes back obedient and says, no, I'm not going to curse them. I asked God, and God told me not to. But shortly after that, as that worked its way out, Balaam, Balaam, the prophet of God, works a crooked deal with the Moabites and gets them to link up in intermarriage that was forbidden And so you have this sexual immorality and this committing to ungodly practices. And it was Balaam, the man of God, that led them into that. And so, 
Even though that was way in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, here in Pergamum, you had people still preaching the same thing. Yes, you can be Christian and go live that kind of hypocritical, worldly connected, doing those type of things that you know were wrong and explaining it away like it's okay. There were people in that church, according to verse 14, who held the teaching of Balaam, which taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Any church that is teaching according to this book that it's okay for you to sin is wrong. And it was happening there in Pergamum. That's the first thing that he has against them. His teaching led God's people into wrong actions, sinful practices, and sexual immorality. But the second thing is that with the Nicolaitans. And we heard them mentioned in chapter 2, verse 6. If you look back to chapter 2, verse 6, the church in Ephesus, it says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And you remember we made that big point, that the church in Ephesus was known for what they hate, but not for what they love, and just how bad that is. We don't want to be that way. But I made the point then that we don't really know anything about the Nicolaitans. And if you were here two weeks ago and you listened to that sermon on Ephesus, I gave you a little hint that from Acts chapter 6, where they get those first deacons, although we don't know if they're deacons, but it sounds like deacons, Nicholas was one of them. And church history seems to say that Nicholas was a false convert, never really proved to be a believer, led into this false teaching, and the movement that came after Nicholas was the Nicolaitans. All we know about them, according to the Bible, are these two mentions in chapter 2, and there's really no description. But in the church at Pergamum, there are people following that teaching. Verse 15, look at verse 15. It says, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. One of the early church historians, Clement of Alexander, writes this about the Nicolaitans. They abandoned themselves to pleasure in the way goats do, leading a life of self-indulgence. We know how goats are, don't we? They do whatever they want. They go wherever they want to and eat whatever they want to. You don't even hardly keep goats in a pen, right? Goats can climb, they can jump, they can get out of things, whatever. They, they're, they're, they're wild like that. And a church historian said that the church at Pergamum had become like that. That because we're Christians, because we're forgiven, because we know we're saved and on our way to heaven, because we know Jesus is the Savior, we can do anything we want to. We know we're forgiven. That was the reasoning. One commentator writes about that. Their teaching perverted grace, and it replaced liberty with license. We can do anything we want to as long as we keep saying Jesus saves us. Well, that same Jesus sent this message to them saying, I have this against you. That's the way you think, and it's wrong. That's the teaching you're following, and it's not my teaching. He had those things against them, holding to the teaching of Balaam and holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Well, look what verse 16 says. It cannot be more clear. Therefore, repent. Repent. Repent's a big word, isn't it? It's one that we don't use too much because it comes so strong. 
Repent doesn't mean say you're sorry. Repent doesn't mean apologize. It may include that, but it doesn't mean that. Repent means to turn away from. That's what repent means. If you're a Christian in the church of Pergamum, and you've been listening to the teaching of Balaam, you've been to a couple Bible studies on the Nicolaitans, and you're going this way, the word of Jesus comes to you and says, repent, says this right here, do an about face, 180 degrees, and you're no longer about the teaching of Balaam, and you're no longer about the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You listen to the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the teaching of the Bible, and you follow the word of God. The solution for them was to repent and turn away from that. It's a little bit more difficult these days for us to identify false teaching because everything falls under the same heading these days. We have very few people, honestly, that are really going after cults. Cults these days are so small compared to the amount of people that say they're Christians, honestly, in our context. But there's a lot of false teaching out there. There's a lot of people out there that are giving you their opinions and their own wishes, and they're not showing you what this says. Even if you hate Josh Green and his preaching, this says you need to repent from believing those things. Therefore, repent is the word of Jesus, and we see that. Now, this is a little bit scary because, listen to this. What does the church of Pergamum need to repent of? Not so much what they're doing but what they're believing. Have you ever thought about that before? You ever thought that God's word says for you to repent what you think, what you hold to, what you believe, what your doctrine is, what you believe? Now, it's one thing to be truly innocent and uninformed and, well, I don't know what I think about that. Perhaps you're not wrong if you don't know any better. Be careful with that, but you know what I'm saying when it comes to teaching. If I said, hey, what do, you, what do you think about this? You say, I don't know, I've never read it before. Well, maybe you're not wrong in that way. But if you have been taught, especially taught by a false teacher, and now you're believing things that you should not believe, believing things that aren't in the book, aren't in the word, aren't according to God, then we're wrong and we're in error and we are believing sinful things and we need to repent of that. If Jesus is the one true God, the living Savior that died on the cross for our sins out of his love for you to save you from your sins, to not believe in him truthfully or accurately is to be in error. And the message here is to repent. They need to repent of the teaching that they're holding to. Now, that does include how they're behaving out of that teaching. But for us today, we need to hear that it is the teaching that drives or produces the fruit out of the teaching. And this is a big principle in life. Our behavior is often determined by that which we believe. Now, you know we can go really far in this direction, you know, say, you know, mind over matter, and we can say thoughts becomes actions, and there's some really worldly stuff when you get that way. It's a little bit overboard, but I do want us to see today that our lives are flowing out of that which we believe. If the Bible says don't lie, and it becomes a conviction that God is concerned about our speech and don't lie, then you and I ought to be driven with the power of God to never lie, never lie. 
If the Bible says in, in, in some rules that God says to worship God alone, God alone, don't worship anything else, don't bow the knee, don't confess the mouth, don't give your heart to, don't love anything above God, then you and I ought to be mindful to focus in on loving God and guard against anything else being more important to us than him. That would be idolatry. And if the Bible teaches us all that it teaches us about immorality and sexuality and things like that, then we ought to be very much so mindful of all of the goodness that God gives us in sexuality. And we ought to be recognizing all of that which is not of God in sexuality. And we could go on and on with these. But our behavior often flows from our teaching. And the warning here is that they are holding to false teaching. In the passage that we mentioned earlier, the Hebrews 4 passage, which is verse 12 that says the word of God is powerful and living and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it gets inside of us and goes to work. That passage, well, earlier Matt read not just verse 12, he read verse 11 and verse 13. And if you remember that, the whole context, you're kind of like, why does he all of a sudden in in, in chapter 4 of Hebrews just bam, like that, jump into this awesome statement on the word of God? And everybody knows, or a lot of people know, that Hebrews 4.12 is that passage that talks about the word of God being active and living and sharper than two-edged sword. We've heard that a lot. Why does he go there? When verse 11, did you hear what the context context was? They had become disobedient people. In verse 13, the verse after it, did you hear what the context was? They had become people that weren't going to live for God rightly. And the solution for living disobedient lives is getting back to knowing what God says on how to live rightly and how not to live wrongly. The word of God is a lamp to direct our feet. It is a light to show us the way. The way of Christ is a straight and narrow that we can't earn on our own, but by his power will guide us into which directions we don't turn to and which directions we labor into. All the while on this side of heaven being bad at it. Christians are sinners, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And not a single person in here or on the planet tiptoes the straight and narrow with their own power or their own accuracy. We must constantly hear the word of 216 and repent. Not only the church of Pergamum needs to repent, I need to repent, and you need to repent. We need to always admit and see our flaws and our bad attitudes and our waywardness. We need to see our struggle with sexual morality. We need to see our struggle to not listen to the truth and be led accurately and our struggle to listen to the wrong things and buy into those. We need to live lives of repentance. The Bible teaches a continual repentance where we pray regularly for God to forgive us of our sins, where we examine ourselves to see if we're on the right path. Are we following Christ and turning away to believe is to be repenting, to hold to Jesus as the one who will save you from your sins and take you to heaven and give purpose to your life is to recognize there are some things in my life that need to be turned away from. Here in the church at Pergamum, it was the two things, Balaam's teaching and the Nicolaitans' teaching that were causing them to intermingle in worldly ways, causing them to get involved in things and places and people that they shouldn't be. Sinning. We have to be careful with this. There's a tendency throughout the history of churches to start then to just be scared and only talk bad about the world and 
be so sheltered from it that there's, there's such a divide that we're hardly a light in the darkness. We're a wimpy people that all we can do is talk bad about and avoid others. That ain't it. To the church at Ephesus, they were living in that New York City type place and they did so many good works They just needed their heart to be in the right place. To the church in Smyrna, the persecution was coming, and he told them, don't run, be faithful unto death. And to the church of Pergamum, living in that intellectual city where everybody knew that they were smarter than the Christian people that believed that old-fashioned way of God, he told them, hold tight to my name. Keep my faith, even if everybody else around you mocks the church and the book and the truth, the truth and the Savior that died for it, don't you hold fast. And everywhere that we can observe that we have been believing something wrong, may we repent And everywhere in our lives where we can see that we are living out of line with God's ways, may we repent. Christian people are repenting people. And the church of Pergamum needs to repent. Last thing, look at verse 16. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And then in verse 17, he tells them to hear and to listen and to receive the response. Notice there, it is the sword of his mouth again, which I'm telling you is the word of God. We don't want God to deal with us according to his truth. By grace and mercy, he's given us his truth. And it is the response of believers to believe it, to commit to it, to know it, and to follow it. If you're here today, may you renew yourself today to following Jesus and his truth. If you're here today and you need to repent and realign yourself with God and his truth, may you do it. Even though we live in a fallen world that often goes against God, May we be in the world, but not of the world. As John writes in 1 John, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the church at Pergamum and the letter to them. And we hear the warning to them, God. We pray that you would protect us from falling into worldliness. We pray, dear God, that you would convict us of our sins and where we have gone wrong. We pray, dear God, that you would lead us into repentance and that we would follow your ways. Father, we thank you for Christ who is worthy, worthy of Antipas to die for the cause and be a faithful witness, worthy of the church of Pergamum to hold fast to the name. And Father, we pray that by your grace we would be like Pergamum in that way, like Antipas in that way, may we be a faithful witness to you that we will know your word and live by it. God, thank you for Christ, our Savior. 
In his name we pray, amen.